You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host from BleacherReport.com, Chad Dundas, and joining me as always from MMA Junkie and USA Today, it's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Ben, how you doing this week? Doing fantastic. How are you? You recovering from the Super Bowl? Yeah. You weren't out in the streets actually eating literal horse shit like that dude from <laughs> Philadelphia, were you? I just don't understand that. I feel like there's a lot of different things you could do to celebrate a Super Bowl victory, and that one just not even top five, not even top ten. That's not a that's not that's a young man's game. That's not <laughs> a forty is, year old man's game. No, the the forty year old man is the guy I assume uh, standing back there reminding somebody that when you're taking a video of it to turn your phone horizontally for to get the landscape mode. Just and wondering when when he gets to go home. Yeah. Wondering if this is almost over. Right. He he didn't even mean to be caught up in it. He was just waiting for the traffic to clear. And next thing you know, you're in the middle of a riot. Kind of weird uh, that the fact that Philadelphia was going to burn in the wake of the Super Bowl one way or another was kind of like uh, a foregone conclusion. I always think it's weird when people are like, well, the the end of this sporting event will uh, will precipitate a riot in this city and there's just nothing we can do about it. I don't understand the victory riot. You should go to the other people's city and riot if you're going to do that. I don't. You won. Like I don't see how that joyous feeling presents itself to the riotous impulse. It's just the uh, it's mob rule, man. Mob rule mentality. It's disappointing. This episode of the Co-Main Event Podcast is once again brought to you in part by Fulton and Rourke. Men and women listening to the sound of my voice right now, this is your reminder that Valentine's Day is coming up. Oh, shit. Let Fulton and Rourke take the guesswork out of the most dreaded holiday of the year by giving your significant other an upgrade in the personal grooming department. Oh yeah, and I got a secret for you. Giving the gift of Fulton and Rourke's fine men's grooming products is actually a gift for yourself, since that other person in your life will never have looked or smelled better. That's right, Chad. On top of that boast, the exciting news is that Fulton and Rourke's face wash is back in stock and has been made even better, now with vitamin E tea tree extract. You could scoop that up or get their fabulous 2-in-1 shampoo and body wash, specially formulated using rosemary extract, vitamin B5, and caffeine to give it a uniquely invigorating fragrance while leaving your hair and skin looking and feeling good long after you stepped out of the shower. If it's smell that you're after, check out Fulton and Rourke's complete line of solid colognes, including Sterling, featuring notes of tobacco, leather, and vanilla. Like all Fulton and Rourke fragrances, it comes in a heavy-duty, refillable metal container that will go anywhere, from your gym bag, to your pocket, to your desk drawer at work. Of course, our exclusive promotional code is also back in service over there at the website. It's real easy to use. Just go to FultonandRourke.com, load up your cart with great stuff, and then enter the promo code CME at checkout to get 15% off your order, either for yourself or your partner. That's FultonandRourke.com, built for the way guys operate. You going to talk about the Patreon here? The Patreon? Would it say it again? The Patreon? Patreon. The Patreon? The Patreon? Okay, here's, here's what we're doing right now. You know what number we're sitting at? I think it was like 374. 274. Or 274. Getting I'm getting, way ahead of I'm yourself. getting ahead of ourselves. But if it was 374, we'd be doing this live from Miami Beach. That's right. Right? Yeah. Just talking into solid gold microphones. Uh, now, a lot of people, what they would do here is say, you know, let's shoot for 300. Nice round number, 300. What I'm saying is this, Chad. What if we breeze right past 300? <laughs> okay, now we who's go, getting ahead of ourselves? We go rocketing toward 350 and once we get there here's what you and i do we sit down for an extra special additional episode of the cme podcast i know a lot of people out there were hoping to see a revival of the drinking game episode mm, the dreaded cme the drinking ill-advised game. cme drinking game episode terrible here's what i suggest i suggest that what we do chad is we pick a pride event you know, we can take some input on which Pride event we want to watch. We're going to sit down, you and I, in a locked room together, maybe even barricaded. I don't know. We're going to sit down 
and watch a Pride event from start to finish, you know, making our commentary, doing a, a podcast as we're doing it. Okay. But we're also going to make watching this Pride event into its own drinking game. Oh, God. Filled with all sorts of Pride-specific drinking cues. Like, for instance, you know, you gotta, like, if you got to finish your beer when somebody gets soccer kicked, you know? There's, there's just going to be some kind of stuff like that. Every, you know, you got to take a drink every time the referee during the pre-fight instructions uh, to drive the point home touches somebody in the head and then, and then on the cup in order to communicate no headbutting and no shots to the groin. That's a, that's a drink right there. That kind of stuff. And, you know, it's going to take us a few hours to get through the Pride event. And, uh, you know, at the end, maybe we'll go tip some cars over and eat some horse poop. I don't know. But this extra special event will be available to patrons of the CME podcast on Patreon and only if we hit 350. So somehow, if you can prevent us from getting the 350, you don't have to do it. Is basically, I can already see the wheels turning in your head. It makes me feel sick uh, just to listen to you talk about it, but I guess, yeah. I, I guess I'll accept it. So just to recap, you're talking about a special episode of the co-main event podcast where you and I drink our way through a Pride FC event, and that episode will only be available to patrons of the Patreon. That is correct. Once we get to 350. 350. Holy Mary. That means 76 people. Sitting out there right now, we've got five dollars a month in their pocket, dollar fifty an episode, and not even counting this special episode. And you know, they're thinking to themselves, "Man, listening to these two idiots get progressively drunker as they try to find the words to capture Don Fry's radiance." That sounds like a good time to me. That's something I'd be willing to throw in for. As an added bonus, I suppose everyone can just go in uh, and cancel their Patreon after we die during this event. Die of alcohol poisoning. I would assume they would put some money to right. our like give us a couple costs. months for funeral costs and GoFundMe yeah, stuff. That's right. Donate to a charity of our choice. In your case, I believe you're you're big into uh, the hungry animals. Pandas. Right? Yeah, I thought you were going to save say the pandas. pandas. Yeah. So this is what we're doing. That's what we're doing. Right? That's what we're doing. All right, it's a deal. I hope we <laughs> hope we don't get to three fifty anytime soon. Uh, we got music this week from our guy, the Fifth Element, a music producer in Fort Worth, Texas. If you like what you hear on the show, you can check him out over on Twitter at the Fifth Element, Facebook.com slash the Fifth Element, or SoundCloud.com slash the Fifth Element official. And as you know, that's the word the with an a, the Fifth Element official. Three rounds, as usual, this week in the Co-Main Event Podcast. In round number one, never underestimate MMA's ability to take an up-and-coming athlete with an inspiring personal story and try to get her killed. And in round number two, Max Holloway is out and TJ Dillashaw ain't having it. So as we speak, the main event for UFC 222 on March 3rd is currently listed as Stefan Struve versus Andre Arlovsky. Get hyped. So just take a minute to let that sink in. And in round number three, nope, we're not going to tr stop trying to make the Cuban muscle crisis happen. But can athletic surfer Luke Rockhold further deflate the rippling and bulbous expectations around Yoel Romero? All that plus, are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff? But first, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. Ben, the first piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Alexander Nogira, professional MMA fighter. Okay. And also maybe a person of the same name who listens to the co-main event podcast. Are we sure there's not uh, also a soccer player by that name? It could be a lot of people by that name. Did you check out our guys Crystal Palace playing to a 1-1 draw against Newcastle? Wouldn't have missed it. On Sunday? Yeah, exciting stuff. Is he... That's just one of the benefits of being a patron of the US, of the the Coming Event podcast is you get to tell us which English Premier League soccer team we should be fans of. And now I'm all in on Palace. Is that, I'm all in. Is that up for grabs again next uh, season? Are there seasons? Do they do seasons? Yes, they do seasons. Top of the table. You feel like it was just constant, like it's constant I, soccer. Being I don't know. There? Yeah, seems that way. It's like <laughs> Russian MMA. There's a, one something <laughs> happening every minute of every day. I tell you, I, I get excited now when I see. Palace is on the TV. Anyway, from Alexander Nogueira, 
He writes, okay, so Machida got a split decision over Eric Anders in Brazil. The fight was indeed close, but why do we feel that fighters born outside the U.S. tend to have an unjust advantage when fighting in their home countries? Does it make any sense? Don't the judges scoring the bout come from overseas? Aren't they always pretty much the same guys? Please discuss. So, Ben, uh, as you know, Leota Machida, would he snap a three-fight losing skid here this past weekend? Gets the win over Eric Anders via split decision in the main event of uh, Fight Night 125 down there from Balim, Brazil. Uh, split decision 48-47, 47-48, and then sort of the outlier 49-46 uh, to give the verdict to Machida here. Uh, I guess to specifically answer Alexander Nogueira's question, the thing that struck me most about this decision was that the the 49-46 score, which was the last one that they announced on the broadcast, uh, came from Tony Weeks who's like a, a, a fairly, uh, you know, common judge at the UFC. They use Tony Weeks a lot. Yeah, so and a boxing referee. And, yeah. it's, it's not like you can look at this thing and, and, and really think that like three Brazilian judges stacked it up for Machida. Right, but I don't think that that's the only way for the home crowd to influence the outcome of a, a judge's no, decision. No, for sure. I for think sure not. What happens more often, and I think that the – Judges are often not even aware it's happening is that the way the crowd will get behind their guy and I've seen it in action on local shows and big shows and you know your guy lands a punch and the crowd goes wild the other guy lands two and no real response and it can make you know psychologically it can it can have an effect where it makes you feel like the other guy is doing better than maybe he is and I think especially with a fighter like Machida where you know whether he ends up Winning a close decision or losing one, he's always walking kind of a razor's edge if it's not a fight that he's going to finish, where he is really dependent on a judge appreciating his style and the things that he can do. And I think there's a lot to appreciate about his style, but you can also see how he's going to go out there some nights and some judges are just going to be like, what the hell is this guy doing? He's just running away. Or he's just standing there and, and fainting. He's not actually doing much. So you are kind of dependent on people appreciating those moments of action that you do have when you're a fighter like Leo Machida and being able to fight in front of a Brazilian crowd that's going to get really excited about any action and is probably not going to boo you when there are prolonged periods of inaction. That does help you out. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. I think that, that that's probably true. Uh, this was a close fight, obviously. Uh, I don't necessarily know if it would have been a robbery either way. Uh, I kind of thought Eric Anders deserved to get the to get the nod here. Uh, but it's not so egregious of a score uh, the, that I would say that like locale or judges or any other sort of environmental fa factors had a ton to do with it. Um, I also don't necessarily think that it's a result that Eric Anders needs to be ashamed of. I thought like aside from not getting the win, coming in as, as an undefeated prospect and proving that you can go five rounds with Leota Machida, even if it's a like almost 40 year old. Uh, somewhat lessened version of Leota Machida probably only uh, foreshadows good things for Eric Anders in his uh, in his UFC career. Uh, what, what what was your takeaway here, Ben? I, I thought like you know Machida gets the win. I don't necessarily know what if anything great is next for him in the middleweight division. Uh, and then you also got Eric Anders, who I felt like skated out of this thing with his first professional loss, admittedly, but uh, you know not looking terrible, L looking like he deserves at least some of the hype that he's gotten in his UFC career up to this point. Yeah, I, I mean, there's not like a, a anything you can point to and say like that Eric Anders had a hype bubble burst or anything. He proved to be up to the task. One thing I wonder about, his corner kind of did the just coast thing going, going into the fifth round, uh, which he lost. I, I believe he lost the fifth round on or on two of the three scorecards. Um, so that could have made a, a difference there. And you just kind of wonder, like... I understand what they were trying to communicate, I guess, that, uh, hey, you – I think the way they phrased it was, um, you know, you don't want to get crazy like and make any mistakes out there. And when a guy like gets a guy like Machida, you can always screw up and run right into a punch and your whole night can be over. But it did seem like in a fight like that where he seemed to be at times kind of just loading up for one big shot – and when you get down to those later rounds and you kind of realize like maybe that shot's not coming, then maybe that's when you should be thinking a little bit more about like, hey, we're fighting Leota Machida in Brazil here. You might need to make it really clear either, you know, with output or something that you are the guy winning this fight. And I, I don't know. You leave it that close 
either way, you can't be too upset uh, with the decision. But if you're looking at who looks like they did more in the fight, I, I got to give it to Eric Anders. I mean, he hurt, hurt, hurt Machida, had Machida worried a few times, and I don't think he ever really looked like he was too hurt himself. No, I agree with you. And I think that the corner advice doubly was kind of odd so, since they told him to kind of, you know, uh, lean into the takedowns a little bit. Like, go go heavy on the takedowns. Even if you don't get the takedowns, you're slowing down the action and you're the aggressor. When I thought, as I think Paul Felder pointed out correctly on the broadcast, it kind of seemed like Eric Anders was uh, – going going for the takedown a little bit too quickly in my mind like he was he was having good success on the feet when he hit Leota Machida uh he hurt him and I know that Machida is obviously a dangerous counter striker and you got to be careful when you're up there on the feet and I think Eric Anders probably came in with a game plan to try to take him down and indeed did like bust him open with that knee off a takedown as Machida was standing up but I think he he might have been able to finish this thing or at least have some more success had he followed up those those heavy strikes with some more strikes rather than you know landing one one left that that hurt Machida and immediately diving down on a on a double or a single. It seemed like uh, that strategy might have hurt him more than it helped him in this fight, especially since you don't know how the judges are scoring those takedown attempts when you you can't really hold Machida down. Don't you think maybe that's just an experience though? Yeah, for sure. And I, I mean, like I said, I think that was their game plan. I think that's what they wanted to do was like touch Machida up a little bit and then take him down. Whereas you know, I feel like they could have uh, augmented the game plan a little bit just to, to follow up with a couple shots to see, you know, if, if you could hurt him or even knock him down. Next question this week comes to us from Michael Clifton. He writes, do you think the UFC will thank Desmond Green for fighting and losing to a guy who either has a very poor nutritionist or who doesn't think weight cutting applies to him? The poor guy deserved at least one free hit each round to even things up. What message does that send to the rest of the rooster? Pretty sure he meant roster. Okay. But... How nice of you not to edit it for him. I just think that, that one's funny. Put him on black. Okay, it is kind of funny. Well, well that's, what message does that send to the rest of the rooster, Ben? All right. You having fun? The rest of the rooster. We just all want to make sure you're enjoying yourself. <laughs> I got to get something out of this, right? <laughs> well, all right. Uh, I, this is a another one of those kind of impossible situations for a guy because – I don't know if you saw his Instagram post like the hours before the fight where first he says like, okay, Michelle Brazeras came in five pounds heavy. And according to Desmond Green, he had stipulated like, I'll take the fight, but he can't be more than 173 on fight night. This was a lightweight fight, mind you. You know, it came in at like 161, I think, for the weigh-ins. He says he can't put on more than uh, 173 for the time of the fight. And then he said... He found out the day of the fight that uh, Prezeros was actually weighing about 180. And he said, you know, I'm sitting here at 163, basically, but, like, I'm still going to take the fight. And you can understand what's going through his head at that point, right? You're, you came all the way down to Brazil. You got ready to fight there. You don't want to piss the UFC off, especially, you know, he's, like, one and one in the UFC coming into this fight. Doesn't have, like, a, a long history with the UFC that he can point to. He wants to be a company guy, as he put it. And so you take the fight. I mean, I understand why you put that stipulation in there where you're trying to get him like to agree not to bulk up too much. But then it seems like he didn't think through what was going to happen if he just agreed to it and then blew right past it anyway. Like if you just have a gentleman's agreement there and he just disregards it, I mean, this is pretty much all you can do is like put him on blast on social media and say, I think this was uncool. And afterwards, Michelle Prozeris, his comments seem to suggest that he was confused about exactly what the situation was and that he wasn't sure if this was something Desmond Green was telling him or if it was something the commission was telling him. Uh, and, you know, he he basically just cited, like, a general confusion uh, regarding that. But then they go out there, have a fairly close fight, and especially with Prezeris' style and then the way the fight played out, you've got to feel like maybe 17 extra pounds did help him in that situation, right? Yeah, Prezeris, not, he's not living by the tyranny of the scale. Right. And he's out here doing his own thing, living his own life. Uh, you know what, what is interesting about mixed martial arts, uh, is that the general confusion defense gets used a lot in a lot of different, uh, situations. And that's one that doesn't apply really in normal sports. Like you can, you can go and plead general confusion if you want, but normally that's not going to get you very far. Uh, in mixed martial arts, it was still somewhat the wild west of, of, professional sports like 
it gets you a little further. Like it carries a little bit more weight. You're saying the Patriots, no pun intended. The, the Patriots and Eagles can't go out there and have the Eagles be like, we thought we were allowed 12 men on the field. We discussed this before. I don't. We were confused. Sorry, we were confused. We put an extra guy out there on the field and just everything be cool. Just general confusion. You'd hope for Desmond Green that this doesn't spell the end of his UFC career. Back to back losses now to Rustam Havilov and now uh, Michelle Prezeris. Uh He's only been in the UFC since April of uh, last year. He's, he's, he's got a win, a split decision win over Josh Emmett, future uh, UFC main eventer. Yeah, UFC on Fox main event fighter, main, Josh Main eventer, and then he followed that up with the losses to Habaloff and, and Prezeris. But your, your heart does kind of go out to him in this situation. It sounds like he tried to make the best of it. He tried to do the right thing uh, both for himself and for his future in the UFC. So uh, you, maybe a little bit of a backroom bonus here and uh, – and you hope that, that he gets to carry on with his UFC career? Oh, it would be a dick move. I mean, which is not saying that it absolutely won't happen, but dick move if you cut the guy after something like that. This question comes from Colin from Chicago. He writes, what a dirty, dirty weekend for the Ultimate Fighting Championship. First, Johnny D didn't get paid, uh, then did after much social media shaming. Uh, then Perseris blew, blew weight by five pounds. Then home cooking judging, looking at you, Tim Means. And then we have to watch Valentina Shevchenko beat the snot out of a tough but clearly overmatched fighter while Mario Yamasaki look, looks on and then listen to Dana White inevitably pass the buck afterwards. Maybe I'm in a bad mood because of the inevitable CM Punk co-main event that's going to happen in Chicago. Uh, but it didn't feel great being an MMA fan, seeing almost everything go wrong with this sport in one weekend. Thoughts? Wow, like a lot got packed in there. Well, I know, but I like I read it's this dense. question. I like it. I read this question and I was like, yeah, man, like that's actually uh, that's a good point. Like I feel like because of the stuff that happened at UFC Fight Night 125, and you know some of the surrounding stuff about UFC 222 that we'll talk about later in the show. But I did come in and out of this weekend. Uh, both with a feeling of, of this was not necessarily a weekend that MMA showed its 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 best stripes, and like also just this this feeling kind of over and over again of, of like man, what a shitty run we're on all the way around. Just sort of like uh, star free events, and then last minute fight changes, and and it just feels like we're on a a rough road here in the sport a little bit. Well, and it's a mix of things too. Like some of the things are stuff that is just going to happen from time to time and you can't control like just bad timing on injuries and things like that. And then some of this other stuff, stuff that you can control. Now I'm interested in the, for one thing, you know, we just got done talking about what Desmond Green chose to do there. And John Dodson in a very similar situation did the opposite, right? Instead of trying to like set a weight limit that the guy can come in at later, uh, Pedro Munoz missed weight by, I believe like four pounds, was it? Like, or that they said he was going to come in like four pounds heavy. And then he said like, no, not taking the fight. You know, maybe we can reschedule it later. Uh, and you know that's always going to be a fairly unpopular decision. Uh, but he's in the – Dodson's in the final fight of his contract. You know, you can understand why in that situation he might look and say like, you know what? I'm going to make this guy make weight. And we'll even if I have to take a little bit of short-term shit for it, we're, we're going to do it again another time. Um, do you – is it our accurate read on the situation to say the UFC was content to just completely stiff him there until it seemed like it was going to be enough of a problem and then they're going to give him some money? Because that seems a little bit surprising to me. Because if you if you bend on this one just because enough people on like Twitter are like, hey, pay this man, then you've set a precedent, haven't you? Yeah, and obviously John Dodson is in a lot more stable position to make those sort of demands than Desmond Green. Like John Dodson, a longtime UFC veteran, uh, former title challenger, uh, a guy who could still potentially make waves at 135 pounds if if that's where he stays. Uh, and then a guy, as you said, coming up on the last fight of his contract. And you got to imagine a guy who could find other opportunities if the UFC, you know, uh, tried to punish him by cutting him or, or just not paying him for his, you know, th- for this canceled fight. Uh, John Dodson is a guy that, that a lot of somewhat smaller promotions would probably love to have, uh, you would guess. Um, and it does, it is a weird, once again, UFC thing to like either plan on not paying the guy or re- like l- let slip publicly that you're not going to pay the guy prematurely and then to sort of do an about face when it seems like people are going to find out about it. And again, uh, just yet another reminder that you're dealing with a company that doesn't necessarily have like an employee handbook to, right. uh, but like, isn't this one on the fighters though? Like fighters need to start and their managers 
need to make up their minds on this and to start demanding some stuff in the con. I mean, you need to get a little mo- more in general in writing when it comes to the UFC. But I think this is one where it's become such an issue lately where you don't know what's going to happen. Like if you're in a situation, they say your opponent's five pounds over, what do you want to do? You can't really know what will happen as a result of you saying like, no, I'm not going to take that fight. Like you kind of have to guess at it and it can be different depending on the situation, depending on who's involved. I would think that this, this is the kind of thing that everybody needs to start demanding in their contract to have it spelled out one way or another. So, Because this is a kind of a, a critical question to come there, especially a final fight of your deal. They come to you and they say, what do you want to do? You need to have all the facts about what's going to happen in either way w- before you say yes or no. And to just be kind of like guessing and then hoping Twitter can help get you paid at least a little bit, that's not exactly what I would want to base my financial future on after I've invested in a fight camp. Yeah, and fighters obviously need to demand a lot of stuff, but without a... a an organization or a union or a, a, you know, a a fighters group of any kind to have your back. I think it's a lot easier said than done. And both of the people on this podcast uh, have worked as independent contractors before or currently work as independent contractors and know what it's like to sign contracts uh, with big companies that are, you know, ostensibly giving you a job. Like you can go in there with all the demands you want at the end of the day uh, you're probably going to sign that contract because that's your job. And, and you know, if, if the, especially if you're a guy like Desmond Green, like that's a big opportunity for him in his life and his athletic career. And the UFC is not going to uh, sweat one way or another if it has Desmond Green on the roster or not. Or at least that's the message that they're going to send during that negotiation. Yeah. Last question this week comes to us from Dan France. He writes, uh, guys, the details of Anderson Silva's second positive drug test dropped this week. And let's just say, uh, they are not good for the old spider. Now that we know Silva tested positive for both a steroid and a banned diuretic in October, how does this second failed test affect his overall legacy in your eyes? Man, it just keeps getting worse, doesn't it? It keeps getting sadder is what I think. And imagine like five years ago, the the difference in how we saw Anderson Silva. Like now, it doesn't even seem like people are mad at Anderson Silva the way they sometimes get mad at people for, you know kind of tarnishing a legacy this way, it seems like everybody's just kind of embarrassed by him. Like, that's the overwhelming feeling I get, is that everybody just kind of wishes at this point Anderson Silva would go away. Because clearly, he doesn't, he's not doing a whole lot in these last remaining years of his career. His, his, his ability has kind of fallen off a little bit. And to just see him popping up with, like, you know, tie sex juice defenses, and then he gets popped again and, and doesn't have a, a really good explanation for this one either. Man, it, you just want to pull the plug on the whole thing, right? At this stage, yeah, and it really leaves you with uh, two opinions that I think you can have of Anderson Silva at this point, depending on how charitable you want to be to the guy. Like, you can think that uh, at nearly 40 years old, uh, he he broke his leg at UFC 168 and faced that, uh, you know, enormous comeback to even get back in the sport. And maybe at that advanced age and with that recovery staring him in the face, he decided to uh, do a little extra stuff to help him get back to his old form, or you can go the other way and think that this provides uh, pretty solid evidence that maybe he was on some extracurricular drugs the entire time that he ruled over the UFC. Uh, I saw Brian Stan, I think it was Brian Stan, this this past week, saying that he, he considers there to be a clear, quote-unquote, steroid era in mixed martial arts, uh, kind of like there was in baseball, and that Anderson Silva was one of the best during that period. Uh, so that, that tells you where some people are coming down on this. Uh, I just want to make sure that we are not like that. We're not going to rake Anderson Silva over the coals for two drug infractions while we're going to make a lot of excuses for John Jones having two drug infractions, even though the circumstances are somewhat different uh, in both of them. It feels like it would be uh, unfair for us to like, uh, you know, try to hold Anderson Silva up as some kind of poster boy for, for steroids while uh, we all kind of want to look the other way with John Jones, obviously, because we want to see John Jones come back and fight again. Okay, that's a fair point, but the circumstances are different, especially because if you look at the similarity between their uh, defenses for the first uh, failed test, where John Jones says it was a knockoff dick pill, here's where the knockoff dick pill came from, uh, USADA can go and get themselves a their own version of the knockoff dick pill to test and say, okay, there you go, you're right. Whereas Anderson Silva says, tie sex juice for my friend Marco. And that's all he's got. 
And, you know, like, it's like an unfalsifiable theory, basically. So, like, there is a... And this one, too, like, has been very telling, I think, because first word comes out that he failed a drug test, and for, like, a week, there's nothing from him. Like, no response. And then when there is a response, it's a really tepid non-denial. And then it's like, okay, well, I think maybe sometimes you switch up, you use a new supplement, this stuff happens, and then we find out it was synthetic testosterone and a diuretic. That's hard for me to believe that you just got the wrong protein powder on that one. Like, there, you know, and John Jones, his second one still yet to have all his explanation and counter uh, claims tested. But it does seem like in the response to these, it has been so poor that it, it doesn't even invite you to suspend your disbelief enough to get along with it. Maybe he needed to hire a crisis management team. That nothing that says it? everything is fine, like trotting out your, your crisis management team. Crisis managed. Anyway, that's going to do it for listener mail this week. If you have a question, a comment, a concern that you want to air to the co-main event podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. You go to the website, comainevent.com, and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. While you're there, you can sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter that comes out every Friday morning to catch you up on the news and notes that we miss on all the days that we're not recording the podcast. Stuff always happens. News always breaks. The newsletter itself is short. It's informative. We would love to tell you it's funny. And frankly, you got to sign up for it to know that you've won a giveaway from the Co-Main Event Podcast, which happened this week. That's right. Look at all this great stuff you've got lined up right here, ready to give away. The table is full of stuff that we're sending out, what, today, probably, right? Look at that dop kit. That's a military spec dop kit. Couple, couple of Fulton and Rourke dop kits sitting right there. That's listen, right. Listen to that. That is sturdy. That's a sturdy dop kit right there. You hear that. Uh, and if you don't like the newsletter, well, it's really easy to unsubscribe. As for right now, though, we're going to go ahead and get started with round number one. Well, Ben, a week or so ago... I'm not necessarily sure that we planned to spend an entire round of this show talking about Valentina Shevchenko's fight uh, with Priscilla Cachuera at UFC Fight Night 125. But then, as things so often do these days during fight week, things took a turn, not only with the loss of uh, John Dodson's fight against Pedro Munoz and uh, Shevchenko versus Cachuera getting uh, promoted to co-main event status, but also what transpired in the cage when uh, the two fighters got in there to actually do the damn thing. Now, last week, uh, I think I said, quote unquote, significant underdog is how we should consider Priscilla Cachuera. And we might have said uh, significant differential in skills or something like that. Uh, but as this one played out, it, it turned out to be one of the more striking uh, scenes that we've seen in the octagon for a while. Uh, and I guess I will just start us here. Seems like there's a lot of blame to go around. Do you see the final striking stats on this one? Uh, only what they said on the broadcast. I didn't look them up afterward. I believe this is off the top of my head. I don't have it right in front of me. But I believe the final striking totals were 217 strikes landed for Valentina Shevchenko. And one landed for uh, Priscilla Cachoeira. Well, she landed about five in the first 30 seconds of the fight. Five kind of straight lefts right to the chin of Priscilla Cachuera. And that was where you thought, okay, this is starting to seem like a fight where Priscilla Cachuera doesn't necessarily belong in there with Valentina Shevchenko. Uh, and that was before she even took her down. And that's where the real punishment started. And then the fight just went on and on and on and on. Yeah, well, and... You know, when you said significant underdog, Valentina Shevchenko is about a 10 to 1 favorite in this fight. So the odds makers were not surprised to see this turn out to be kind of one-sided. And it's weird, though, to me that everybody towards the end really seizes on uh, Mario Yamasaki, the referee, kind of standing there watching her get pummeled. And it's clear that she has no real offense to offer to, to Valentina Shevchenko and is just going to get beat up for as long as this thing goes on. And everybody feels like, okay, we've seen enough. You can go ahead and call this off. And Mario's just not having it. Mario's going to wait there until we are absolutely 100% sure we're done with this. And it made me wonder, like, okay, so we were fine with it if it were just going to be a mismatch where she just gets beat up for, like, a few minutes. 
But then when it turned out to be two rounds of this, then we felt like it was too much because it doesn't seem like anybody was really super surprised with the outcome. I mean, we might be surprised a little bit with like the severity of the skill difference that was exposed there, but it wasn't shocking that Valentina Shevchenko went in there and absolutely trucked her. And in fact, in retrospect, seems like that's what was supposed to happen. Yeah, I understand the criticism of Mario Yamasaki. Like, obviously, he didn't do a great job out there. I no, think we were no, all we were all yelling at our TVs at some point during this fight, saying that he could step in and stop it. And also, as you watch mixed martial arts, the referee's job is the most visible one. So, you know, that's what you saw out there was Mario Yamasaki letting Priscilla Cashwera get get her face pounded in. But, you know, like you alluded to, I think there's more stuff going on than meets the eye here. For one thing, uh, as the odds makers pointed out, and as we talked about on the show last week, like clearly from a matchmaking standpoint, this was a very one-sided affair, uh, assumedly designed to get Valentina Shevchenko some highlights as a women's flyweight. This was her debut at 125 pounds. Uh, she's, she's assumedly a title contender there, so get her, get her a fight where she can look good in her first outing at 125 pounds. And then you get the all important shot of her getting up once it's over with blood smeared down one half of her face, smiling and pointing at the camera. So you can use that for your promos, uh, from here on out. Uh, but I think now that we've seen it, and maybe this is just a case that hindsight is twenty twenty. you really got to question the matchmaking decision here, exactly what was happening with bringing Priscilla Cachoeira in, uh, and, you know, having a fight that at least to the untrained eye seemed like it should be unsanctionable. Well, and did you see Dana White's response to the matchmaking criticism? I did. And that's, I think, uh, another thing that we have to talk about during this round. Well, yeah. I don't understand the like the point he's trying to make at one point where he says that, hey, the division is new. Like that's the explanation for it. This division is new, and so there are gonna be fights like this that that happen sometimes as you try to figure out the pecking order and who belongs and who doesn't, which makes no sense to me. Because the division is new in the UFC. It's not new. It's this division women's flyway has been around for a while, so it's not like everybody's starting at absolute zero and we just got to figure it out on the fly. You could have figured out that Valentina Shevchenko was going to be pretty good as a, uh, a women's flyweight. You know how you could have figured it out, Chad? Because she came within like a point or two of being the women's bantamweight champ in her last fight. You know, could you could make a case that she even deserved a decision victory over Amanda New in the weight class higher. So obviously you bring, you bump her down a weight class. She's going to be pretty good there too. You take somebody else who's never really faced that level of competition. It doesn't really have those skills, you know, against Valentina Shevchenko, extensive kickboxing experience and expensive mixed martial arts experience. Yeah. It, it's not like it was completely unforeseeable that she's going to go out there and crush her. You know, what is the period on the end of the sentence? As far as the UFC's response to this, as far as I'm concerned, what's that Chad? They gave Valentina Shevchenko 50 grand, a performance of the night bonus for what she did to Priscilla Cashware out there. So, like, you can make all the excuses you want. You can talk about the bad refereeing if you want. Uh, you gave this woman an incentive, an incentivized post-fight bonus after you had seen what she had done to a person who clearly, after we saw it, did not belong in the cage with her. So, like, that kind of tells the whole tale. As far as I'm concerned. Well, I mean, we can't blame Val. It almost sounds like you're criticizing Valentina Shevchenko for her. No, she doesn't have any say. Cold hearted execution. She doesn't have any say into who gets the $50,000. I'm just saying from a UFC standpoint, like you told me everything that I needed to know. Yeah. After this thing was over that you, you went out and gave Valentina Shevchenko the performance of the night bonus. Ben, one of the big question marks to me moving forward is what the UFC does with Priscilla Cashuera because... As I said at the top of the show, she's obviously a person who came into this fight with a compelling personal story. Uh, I wrote a feature about her last week on Bleacher Report, which in the end made me feel a little bit complicit to what happened out there in the cage. But like, if you take this person who is a former drug addict and has clearly had the, these struggles in her past and overcome all that and become a professional mixed martial artist, and you essentially throw her to the wolves in a fight that we all knew going in she was probably going to lose and lost in horrific fashion after we got a chance to see it. Uh, do you cut her after that? Because that is incredibly heartless to me and is, is the kind of thing that like would raise some questions about, you know, how you should treat a person with, with her 
like personal history, uh, or do you give or just a, how you should treat a person in general? Maybe right, but like even more heartless to to take a person who is like a former addict who has these uh, life experiences and clearly like a history of substance abuse and who has now cleaned up her life, and then you give her the shot that she we all think that she's probably working to this entire time. If you just cast her aside, like that's it's kind of doubly cruel to do that to a person who has those tendencies than it would be to do to a person who, you know, to do to a Paige Van Zandt, let's just say. Okay. Um, well, first of all, Paige Van Zandt was bullied. I don't know if you know that. That was, so that's something she had to deal with. Um, but so then the alternative is you decide like you're firm in your resolve. You don't want it to look like you were just exploiting Priscilla Cachoeira and, and using her as a human punching bag when you were in Brazil and then now you don't need her anymore. So you got to give her another fight then, right? But then who do you match her up against? Because if you give her another fight against somebody lower down on the, the flyweight pecking order and she gets smashed in that one too, then you're just like prolonging your kind of uh, misery by association there, aren't you? Yeah, but I, I like I, I say that it would be heartless to cut her after after this loss, one that seemed like a setup for all intents and purposes. I mean, I would give her another fight against someone who's maybe you don't believe is advanced as Valentina Shevchenko and see how she does. Uh, maybe let her fight out her contract, whatever it was. Like eventually the, the cold hard attrition of professional sports does has to have to take hold at some point. I just think it would be a real bad look to bring her in for this fight and this fight alone. Uh, so I will be interested to see if we see her in the octagon again after this. I'm glad you brought up though, the, how you were complicit because now that I think the more I think about it, the more I feel like this is, like 90% your fault. You want to talk uh, some extended irony from this? Remember last week when we talked about uh, letting our children watch the fights and I talked about how my kids weren't interested, et cetera, et cetera. Uh Oh, well, you said the thing last week about how you always make sure to point out to your daughters when the women are fighting. Yeah. Because you want to point out to them that they can do whatever uh, the men can do. So my daughter was in the living room. We were watching the the fights together, or as she said, the baseball game, because they are confused about, various athletic contests. Uh, and so Valentina Shevchenko and Priscilla Cachoeira were fighting. So I had my daughter, my five-year-old daughter watching with me. And like I said before, she has never really expressed much interest and or like attention span for this kind of thing. And then like halfway through the first round of uh, this fight, like when Valentina Shevchenko lands one of those real stiff elbows that she lands uh, on Priscilla Cachoeira, I looked over at my daughter and she was like holding a stuffed animal over her face. <laughs> <laughs> and she said, this is a little bit scary for me. Wow. So, yeah, I went ahead and turned that off. Good work. What was your daughter even doing awake at that time? It was like well, 10 o'clock at night. It was, we were not watching it live. Okay. We were watching it via tape delay. The magic of the DVR. Wow. So you really have no excuse there. You could have known what was coming next. Well, I didn't, I didn't look at any results before I watched it. So I could come here to the Co-Main Event Podcast and give our listening audience a... Your very fresh take. A, a fre- yeah, fresh pipe and hot takes. Anyway, uh... Don't let your kids watch Valentina Shevchenko versus Priscilla Cachoeira. Uh, what are we doing here? You want to do Are You Fucking Kidding Me? And then we'll move on to round two. Sure. Ben, what's your Are You Fucking Kidding Me for this week? Well, I saw this on Twitter, and you might have seen it passed around a little bit, how uh, it seems like the UFC is a part of some sort of ad feature with Esquire and Modelo, UFC's new beer sponsor. Great new sponsor. I think I've, I've gone on record saying that works for me. Yeah, works for me as well. Uh, but it seemed like from the, the first images of the, the layout in the magazine that one of the UFC personalities they were choosing to highlight with this was UFC President Dana White, who does not actually fight in the UFC, which seemed maybe a curious choice. Then I go to the website and look up this little like promotional video they have where it's like Dana White's you know motivational tips for business or whatever, and the text below the video starts with this line, Chad. Dana White hasn't had a day off since he and his business partners bought Ultimate Fighting Championship, the mixed martial arts organization, in 2001. That's right. Dana White has not had a day off in that time. Uh, You know where uh, Dana White was when he wasn't at that press conference where John Jones and Daniel Cormier brawled in the, the lobby of the MGM Grand? Where was he, Ben? Fiji. Oh, hard at work. Presumably hard at work because he hasn't had a day off. Also, are you fucking kidding me? All the great fighters, all the, the, the people that you have who you can really throw some spotlight on, you know, get a more mainstream audience in- interested in, and you choose Dana White? He's not a fighter. He's not one of the fighters in the UFC. Are you fucking kidding me? I will also eat my hat if he has been out here drinking Modelo on the regular. That might be the only part I believe. Before the sponsorship, he seems like more of a Bud Light guy to me. 
Ben, uh, Brennan Schaub had himself a week this week. Oh, boy. So I think you've probably heard the quote at this point, but I will just read it here for everyone listening. Here's the quote from Brennan Schaub. Sometimes when you look at UFC tonight, you're like, is this the best panel possible or are you just trying to check off the boxes? We get it, UFC tonight, Fox. You're not racist. We get it. You have an all-black panel. We get it. We get it, man. Are you fucking kidding me, Brendan Schaub? Fucking kidding me? That's not all, though, Ben. I would like to read another quote that Brendan Schaub also said this week. Uh Uh-oh. Maybe we put him on... He's talking about CM Punk, right? CM Punk uh, has got to come back and have another fight in the UFC. So here's Brendan Schaub's quote about it. Maybe we put him on Fox. What about Chris Cyborg? What if you do a battle of the sexes? What about this whole Me Too movement and you put one out there for the ladies and let Cyborg knock his fucking head off? She would knock his fucking head off. What about that? Why not do it? I, I feel like this is one where I would need to hear the tone of his voice and see his facial expression when he's saying those things. I mean, is, are, this, is this intended to be serious? Are you fucking kidding me? That's going to do it for round number one. We'll be right back with round number two. Well, Chad, Max Holloway done got injured. A leg injury has forced Max Holloway out of the UFC 222 main event featherweight bout against Frankie Edgar. And this one is a bummer, man, because there is not a whole lot going on there to back it up. I'm going to tell you right now what we're looking at as far as a UFC 222 card at the time of this recording. Okay, lay it on me. Right now, top of the card, you're looking at a heavyweight fight between Stefan Struve and Andre Olovsky. Ouch. Somehow in the year 2018. Then... You got Clarence Byron Dalloway taking on Hector Lombard. It's nice to know that the Connecticut Blue Blood is still out there swinging fists, though, right? That is. That is comforting. Uh, then you got Ashley Yoder and Mackenzie Dern. Okay, a lot of potential there, Mackenzie Dern. Uh, Kat Zingano versus Ketlin Vieira. Good to see Kat Zingano back at it. Uh, Sean O'Malley versus Andre Sukumov. No, so? I- no idea who either of those guys are. Yeah, Sean O'Malley is uh, actually a uh, a local boy, in a way. Kind local of. to here or local to Paradise, Helena. Nevada? Oh, Helena, Montana. That's right. Okay. Yeah. Go Sean O'Malley. I believe now he's down there in Arizona at the lab, but uh, yeah, he, he's, a, he's a Montana guy. Then Brian Caraway versus Cody Stamen. Uh-huh. Jordan Johnson versus Adam Milstead. Just could be making these up as far as the I'm Neil concerned. Neil Dariush versus Bobby Green. That's a decent little fight. $65. Are they really going to try up. to charge $65, the, inf- the new inflated price for this thing? I don't know. But right now, it doesn't look great for USC 222. And just when we were getting excited about Max Holloway, Max Holloway seemed to be a guy that everybody was finally fully embracing. And now he gets hurt and we got to hit the pause button a little bit. Yeah, he seemed to handle it okay, though, with his normal uh, panache, I guess you could say, good humored uh, response from Max Holloway following the leg injury. Ben, is there... Is there hope for this card? Are we going to find somebody, anybody, for Frankie Edgar to fight? And is it a possibility that we can get Cody Garbrandt against TJ Dillashaw or something to back this fight up? Because otherwise, uh, I mean, I assume they will find something for the top of this card. But without it, like, this is a shoe-in for worst UFC pay-per-view card of all time, right? You know, I think probably the ship has sailed on TJ Dillashaw versus Cody Garbrandt. And I talked this one over with Danny Downs in our column this week. This is one where I feel like even some of the more typical, let's say, MMA fans are going to be able to understand where TJ Dillashaw is coming from on this because he's got a new baby. He's not in training and you want him to, to step up in time, you know, to fight on a card that, on March 3rd. And he already kind of has his eyes on this Demetrius Johnson fight, which is going to be more popular, make him more money. And it seems like it's actually got a good shot at at happening so why would he turn right around and rematch cody garbrandt just to you know do the ufc a solid and save this card it just it doesn't add up so i don't think anybody or at least i don't think too many people are going to blame him for making that decision uh frankie edgar versus your boy t city on the other hand that seems like a possibility yeah uh one that would divide team dundas in half between the old man and the young lion oh man we'd have to think of where we would throw our rooting interest, I guess, or or maybe just sit that one out. 
Dundas divided against itself. Do we put the uh, do we put an interim title on the line here? Or, oh God, or, no! Get out of here! Get up! What's going get out of here right now? What is going on with Close Max Holloway's leg? Is it and leave? Are we going to be back in? Are we going to have two good wheels on the featherweight champion here soon, or is this like a uh, a more serious deal? How dare you! How dare you even say the words interim? You know, by just saying it, just saying it out loud, you make it more possible. You know, now you're complicit in another thing. How many more you want to add? I feel like we didn't really underline how complicit you are in letting my in me letting my daughter watch that Valentina Shevchenko Priscilla Cashwera fight. Wow. We, we skated over that. <laughs> we, just we skated over that in the last a hard round. Turn. But it was really your fault. I just wanted to make sure we got that out there. Wow. Unbelievable. Uh now I think that there's already a great deal of interim title fatigue going on out there. There sure is. There's a lot of interim title fatigue, but you got to think at this point, considering what's going on on the UFC schedule surrounding UFC 222, uh, it would be nice to put some gold on the poster so that all the people at the press box see it. Maybe they, they come get a pizza and a pitcher of beer to watch the, the title fight. How about this? How about if we strike a deal with the UFC where we say, you know what? We'll let you put as many titles as you want on the poster. As long as they don't actually exist in real life. <laughs> we will agree that you can go ahead and you can do this so that whoever is going to be tricked by something like that, like whoever is going to see like a belt on the poster and be like, I wouldn't care about these guys otherwise, but now I'll show up to watch it. Like, go ahead and trick those people. We're fine with that. That is acceptable to us. Just don't then make the rest of us pretend to care about it like it's a real – like don't even introduce it as an actual physical object once the fight rolls around. Uh, you know – by the time those people figure it out, it's too late. They're already, you know, six Bud Lights in at the press box eating boneless wings. It, it won't matter anymore. I, If we could strike that bargain, I'd be okay with it. Because right now, man, the words interim title are like the last thing I want to hear. And as far as how long Max Holloway is going to be out, does he still have both legs? Because if he still is in possession of both legs, then I say no need for an interim title here. All right, so we get Frankie Edgar and uh, T-City up at the top of this card, featherweight interim title or, or no uh, uh, are you doing this? on the line. Is it really going to surprise you if they twist T.J. Dillashaw's arm into, into getting him out there to fight Cody Garbrandt again? Because I understand that we're saying we don't think that's going to happen, but T.J. Dillashaw, kind of a, a company guy, a guy who, who they could probably make a compelling financial arrangement with. I'm just going to say it's not going to totally shock me if we do end up with a Dillashaw-Garbrandt rematch on this card. Okay, if you're saying they're going to twist TJ Dillashaw's arm, what I'm hearing is what they're going to offer him, uh, you know, a deal he can't refuse to get out there and fight Cody Garbrandt. Because at what point, it's not like you're going to do a terrible pay-per-view number with this card as it is, but if you add a rematch between TJ Dillashaw and Cody Garbrandt, boom, 800,000 pay-per-view buys. Like, that's not going to happen. Like, even with, like, a hastily thrown-together immediate rematch between those two, you're probably looking at, like, you know, what, 300,000 buys, like, at best? Like, it's not like you're—the payoff would be so huge that it would be worth, you know, opening up the vault just to get T.J. Dillashaw to agree to it. So I guess then you're—the deciding factor is whether or not you want to pay T.J. Dillashaw too much money to just prop this thing up over 100,000 buys, right? Because without him— UFC 222 seems like it's it's dead in the water. You know what the UFC usually does in a situation like this? Like, if, if it can't do the first thing, which it would do, which is, like, try to get some other champion to fill in, um, and if, if it won't do the other thing of throwing an interim title out there on somebody, which, God, I hope it won't, then you reach for something just weird enough to be interesting. I like was, kind of Daniel Cormier, Anderson Silva kind of thing. Right. I was just going to say, like... Not to just start pulling names out of the hat, but uh, it does. It feels right now almost more than ever like we could really use a Diaz brother walking through that door, doesn't what? it? What? That's out of the corner of my mouth. What? Or how about uh, Chris Cyborg versus CM Punk? Okay, yeah, no, we're you know, not because you got do the that. Me Too thing going on. We're, we're not. So the timing of it works. Oh, good Lord. Uh, we're not going to do that. But, like, yeah, it does seem like, uh, you know, the, we've been kind of beating the drum about all of the UFC's big draws sort of uh, fading away from the sport at one time. You lost Ronda Rousey. We, we're not sure what's going on with Conor McGregor. Uh, the Diaz brothers appear to be on perennial holdout, just living their lives, having a good time. Uh, it seems like 
you know, George St. Pierre comes back for one fight, then goes back into retirement with his, uh, with his new, uh, what, what does he have? The, uh, the physical ailment. Yeah. George paints St. Pierre has colitis. Yeah. Ulcerative colitis. Uh, it seemed like now would be a pretty good time for someone that we are not thinking of to, to kick open the door and announce that they're back. They back guys. Stay back. Well, and Nate Diaz has reportedly said that he is interested in doing, but against two, like who do you put Nate Diaz in there against where it seems like an actual good use of the, the star power he still retains. Need I remind you that UFC 222 is in a sandwich and the bread around the sandwich is the UFC on Fox where Josh Emmett is going to fight Jeremy Stevens. And then the other piece of bread is Fabricio Verdum versus Alexander Volkov. That's the one in London, right? Yep. Those are, that's your three event stretch here with uh, UFC 222 right in the middle. Oh, when do I get the pause to come up for air? So hopefully something will happen that will give us something to talk about vis-a-vis UFC 222. Uh, As for right now, though, uh, we're going to go ahead and get started with round number three. That starts right now. Well, Ben, speaking of cards where something has gone awry, UFC 221 this weekend, live from Perth, Australia. This is going to be one of those uh, cards that goes down at 11 a.m. local time over there in Perth so that we can put it on in prime time up here in North America. Main event of this thing, obviously, Yoel Romero versus Luke Rockhold. It was originally uh, intended to be some concept, some combination of George St. Pierre Robert Whitaker, Luke Rockhold. Something different was supposed to happen at the top of this card, but George St. Pierre has ulcerative colitis, and Robert Whitaker has some series of unspecified medical situations involving chicken pox and staph infection, maybe an injury, who knows. So what we got is Yoel Romero versus Luke Rockhold. Uh, what's your hype level for this one, man, on a scale of 1 to 10? Athletic Surfer versus the Cuban Muscle Crisis. Man, if this were a UFC on Fox main event, I'd be jacked. This would be an awesome main event for like a free cable TV fight card, would it not? Yeah, we would have knocked it out of the park, right? I would even say as the co-main event on a pay-per-view, be pretty awesome. The co-main event on this pay-per-view, in fact, is Mark Hunt versus Curtis Blades. Okay. All right. I see what's happening here. Before that, you got Ty Tuavasa versus Cyril Asker. It's another heavyweight fight. Then Jake Matthews versus Li Jing Lang. Then Tyson Pedro versus Safarbek Safarov. Nailed it. Safarbek Safarov. I mean, I am. No Wikipedia page. Looking forward to you all, Romero versus the Cuban Muscle Crisis versus the Athletic Surfer. Obviously, that's going to be a hell of a fight. I'm very excited to see that Right, and another fight where we don't necessarily know anything about what will happen, right? I feel like that's a real hard one to pick. Yeah. Well, it does seem to me, though, that if it hadn't been for, like, the diminishing expectation effect, we would be more excited about it. Like, if if this were just, like, another round in the ongoing middleweight tournament of middleweight badasses in the UFC... We'd be really excited. But since it was like, okay, it was going to be Bobby Knuckles, or, you know, and maybe George St. Pierre, and then we just kind of like keep going down the list until you end up with this, and it feels like a consolation prize when really it's an awesome fight. I mean, there's no argument that it's, that it's an awesome fight. Like, it's definitely an awesome fight. I, I mean, I think you're right. It's definitely sort of suffering from the raised expectations of maybe thinking we were going to get to see Bobby Knuckles against George St. Pierre here. Uh, but at the same time, like, Yoel Romero against Luke Rockhold is not a viable pay-per-view main event, right? Like, that, as you said, put that thing on free TV, we're there all day long. But I just don't see Athletic Surfer against Cuban Muscle Crisis. One of them walks out of here with the interim middleweight belt, right? Putting an interim belt on the line here. I know you love that. Oh, yeah. I just don't, I see that as kind of a non-starter, man. I just don't, I kind of don't understand what we're doing here. Except that we have to do a pay-per-view because it's on the... It's on the schedule. Now you understand what we're doing here. You see, I don't get it. You say you don't understand, but you clearly do. That's what we're doing here. You say you got to pick a winner here. What do you say happens? 
I mean, I guess Luke Rockhold? <laughs> That's about as confident as I can get about it either. It seems like, uh, you know, Yoel Romero obviously does this thing where uh, he looks really kind of like listless, like he's kind of uh, having a, a, a an unspectacular performance. He kind of lulls you to sleep and then he he explodes on you. Even in the third round, he's still sort of capable of bringing forth this terrible violence. But Luke Rockhold, I think, is just a a, a more solid competitor, like a guy who who can go the full twenty five minutes, you know, in high gear. And I think he's got that kind of cardio. So, you know, in those instances where Yoel Romero kind of lets down, kind of takes it easy, uh, I feel like Luke Rockhold can probably be the aggressor and make stuff happen. He could also just get KTFO'd at any moment. At any moment, could win. Four and a half rounds, then get KTFO'd. Are there odds for this thing? Are there odds on the internets for this? You know there's odds on the internet. I looked at the odds earlier, and the let me pull up the exact numbers, but basically it's the kind of odds where they're saying, like, hey, who the hell knows, pretty much. Yeah, you got uh, Luke Rockhold, minus 140, Yoel Romero, uh, plus 110. So th- this has changed a little bit from when I looked at it, I think. But, uh, yeah. Romero, I think maybe what people are thinking there is that since he was kind of the the second choice here, who knows exactly how in shape he was when he took the fight, uh, and you wonder if he has to go five rounds if he's going to be there for all five of them. Well, Romero wasn't Romero. He was training for a fight with uh, with the executive David Branch. Oh, was he? Was he not? When was, was that? Supposed to be at UFC on Fox twenty eight. Oh, okay. Um, so then they pulled him out to put him into this thing. Admittedly, Luke Rockhold looked pretty good in the comeback fight against the executive, David Branch, uh, in September of last year. You know, he had the KO loss to Michael Bisping back at UFC 199, uh, which, which is the inciting incident for all this madness, by the way. The UFC middleweight division has just never recovered from Michael Bisping knocking out Luke Rockhold in the first round. I'm glad you traced it back to an inciting incident. Of what was supposed to be like a cakewalk for Luke Rockhold. He'd already beat Michael Bisping once. Beat the brakes off him. Anyway, Bisping walks out of that place with the KO victory, and we've kind of never put the whole thing back together again. But, you know, Luke Rockhold, after an extended period period off, comes back, kind of looks like his old self against Dave Branch, uh, gets the victory there. So I got a little bit of confidence in Luke Rockhold, I guess, moving into this fight. Uh, We haven't seen Yoel Romero since July 2017. He obviously lost to to Bobby Knuckles in their interim middleweight title fight. Um, So, yeah, I guess... Though I am, you can probably hear it in my voice, not confident at all. It seems like if you had $20 you never wanted to see again, Luke Rockhold would probably be the way to go. Unless you thought you wanted to capitalize on those Yoel Romero underdog odds. That's right. And do whatever you want, for entertainment purposes only. You can't. (laughs) Do whatever you want for entertainment purposes only. But if you just can't resist a chance to throw down some money on the Cuban muscle crisis... Uh, is the worst case scenario for the USC that UL Romero wins, and then you basically have to do UL Romero versus Bobby Knuckles again? Which again, not a bad fight. It's fun the first time, but not quite as fresh and exciting as Bobby Knuckles versus Luke Rockhold. Yeah, I feel like when you say worst case scenario, you're you're just you're painting in different shades of gray here. It's hard to imagine much really uh, taking a hammer to the UFC middleweight division even further. It obviously would not be ideal to have to book the middleweight uh, rematch between Yoel Romero and, and Robert Whitaker, but at the same time, uh, I think Luke Rockhold winning an interim title is only marginally better. At least then you can put together uh, Rockhold versus versus Whitaker, uh, a fight that that we haven't seen yet. And so, you know, in that vein, you probably it's a little bit better. Uh, but at the same time, we've still got a ways to go before we feel like we've got this thing fully back on track. And, and a lot of that depends on the health, the health of Robert Whitaker. So, uh, we're kind of spinning our wheels here, man, no matter what happens. Yeah. I mean, at least, I guess if you have to spin your wheels with a bunch of uh, consolation fights, middleweight is the place to do it right now because you got a whole bunch of exciting fighters and fights that you can make there. You want to do just saying stuff? Sure. And then we'll get out of here. Ben, we talked about it earlier. In the show, but this week I'm just saying, well, just pay John Dodson his money, man. Like, why does this even have to be a thing? We're going to let the UFC get shamed into then conceding that, okay, they're going to give John Dodson some of his money? Come on. I'm just saying, just pay the man his money. Just saying. And we can all just move on. You already sold the tickets. It's on free TV anyway. Just saying. 
Chad, I'm just saying, we did a little blog post about this on MMA Junkie, but did you know that now, thanks to a company in England, you can buy a bronze bust of Conor McGregor? Say what now? A bronze bust. Here it is. I'm going to show you a picture right here. Okay. Look that, at him looking all Roman and that stuff. That looks vaguely like Conor McGregor. It yeah. does look like Conor McGregor cast as a Roman emperor. Bronze, Chad. That's the good stuff. What do I what do I do with that? Use it for a doorstop? Naturally, you you put it in your private study. Go put it up on that bookshelf behind you. Forty six hundred dollars American is Get what that's going to run you. Get out for this bronze bust of Conor McGregor. There's only a hundred and fifty. Okay, so we're dealing with a limited edition. Yeah. Okay, that makes more sense then. Um, I guess this week I'm just saying it was another uh, Roman, Cato the Elder, who said. I would much rather have men ask why I have no statue than why I have one. I'm just saying. Get the fuck out of here with your Cato the Elder quotes. $4,600. Wow. That's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. We will be back next week to break down all the stuff that happens at UFC 221, assuming that some stuff happens. And then we will look ahead to a run of fight events that includes such Main events as Donald Cerrone versus Yancey Medeiros. And also, don't forget to get in on that Patreon action that will force us to drink until we black out while watching a Pride event and record it all for your listening pleasure. Josh Emmett versus Jeremy Stevens. It's going to be a maybe for an added bonus, Chad, we can uh, have some like welfare check on you the following morning to see just how hungover you are after having to do the pride drinking game. Stefan Struve versus Andre Arlovsky. Little known fact, Chad gets more hungover than any human being who has ever lived. Fabricio Verdum versus Alexander Volkov. Are you drunk right now? And then finally we get into UFC 223. By this point, it'll be April 7th, 2018. I'll be 40 years old if I indeed survive the pride drinking game. And then we get Tony Ferguson versus Habib Nurmagomedov. And if you don't survive, what a way to go. We're all keeping our fingers crossed that everyone stays healthy there. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. 350 patrons is all it's going to take. How many months of this Patreon thing do we need to let roll before we can get us one of them Conor McGregor busts for the uh, for the CMB we're gonna need We're going to need a few months. It's going to be a little while. How mad would everyone be if that's what we spent the money on? <laughs> oh, man. We just sent out a picture of the Conor McGregor bust sitting on the table. Yeah. And then that's when we realized the Conor McGregor bus is actually haunted. And we're to, like one of us would murder the other with the Conor McGregor bus. Wait, that's that's why you don't get the bronze. They also have to offer like a plaster one. Which, wait, how much is safe?